Stay in the car, so come on, let's ride to the liquor store around the corner. The boys say they want some gin and juice, but I really don't wanna. Beer buzz like I had last week. I must stay deep, cause talk is cheap. I like Angela, Pamela, Sandra, and Rita. And as I continue, you know they're getting sweeter. So what can I do? Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read the works of American writers around 100 pages in a chunk, using the Library of America as my source and my inspiration. Today we will begin a multi-episode exploration of Frank Norris, looking at three of his most important novels, Vandover and the Brute, McTeague, and The Octopus. We will start with Vandover and the Brute, which although published last, was actually the first written. It remained in manuscript form when Norris died at the tragically young age of 32. Frank Norris was born in 1870 in Chicago. His mother was a small-time actress and his father a fairly successful wholesale jeweler. In 1885, the Norris family moved to San Francisco. He studied some art and spent some time in Paris. As he approached college age, he abandoned art and was accepted to Berkeley in a literary program. While in college, he began writing stories. The first novel he wrote was Urnell. While in college, he also wrote Vandover and the Brute and started writing McTeague. In 1895, he took a job reporting on the Boer War in South Africa. He returned home after falling ill. In the final seven years of his life, he married a woman named... Jeanette Black, and he sketched out uh, the epic trilogy of the life cycle of wheat. He only finished the first two of these works before dying of appendicitis in 1902. When we look at an author like Frank Norris, it's impossible not to think about what he could have accomplished had he even just lived another decade. He um, wrote so many major works in just around 10 years. Um, it's 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 really a shame. Um, but we need to deal with something first. Uh, well, maybe not deal with it, but at least I want to introduce it. And here's what the Wikipedia article says about Norris, um, at least part of what he says. Um, it's under a section called Critical Reception. I'll just read the whole thing. Norris's work has not fared well with critics in the late 20th and early 21st century. As Donald Pisner writes... Frank Norris's racism, which included the most vicious anti-Semitic portrayals in any major work of American literature, has long been an embarrassment to admirers of his vigor and intensity of his best fiction, and has also contributed to the decline of his reputation during the past several generations. End quote. Other scholars have confirmed Norris's anti-Semitism. Norris's work is often seen as strongly influenced by scientific racism of the late 19th century, such as that espoused by his professor at the University of California, Berkeley, Joseph LeConte. Along with his contemporary Jack London, Norris is seen as reconstructing American identity as a biological category of Anglo-Saxon masculinity. In Norris's work, critics have seen evidence of racism, anti-Semitism, and contempt for immigrants and the working poor, all of whom are seen as the losers in the social Darwinist struggle for existence. Additionally, his exaggeratedly muscular novels seem to posit women as biologically subordinate to men. All right, that is brutal. Um, that's a brutal entry in the in the article. Uh, 
okay, I'll just come on and say it. Yes, his texts do suggest a very strong anti-Semitism. I, I can't now say it's the, you know, the most anti-Semitic portrayals in American literature, but they're pretty bad. Uh, in the book we're going to start looking at today, there's a passing character. It's not very important, but you know he, he didn't have to be there, but he's there, and so we have to deal with him. Um, in McTeague, though, his anti-Semitism is much more on display, and it borders on just odd and strange, and I'll get to that when we get to that book. Um, it really kind of almost derails the novel for many modern readers. Again, it's not essential um, to the text. And he could have made the point without uh, using certain Jewish stereotypes uh, and, and imagery. And I must confess, it's a pretty odious part of, of Norris's character. Um, I'll only say that my initial reaction is that while the characterizations are suspicious, the Jews portrayed in the, these two novels, um, McTeague and Vandover and the Brute. And I haven't yet reread The Octopus in completion, so I, I'll have to think about that one. But at least in these two, the Jews are not necessarily the greediest or the most despicable characters in the novel. So, you know, that's that. There, there are worse portrayals uh, of characters. I mean, they're not the most odious uh, of all the characters in these novels. Uh, next, we have these claims of social Darwinism and sexism. The sexism claim is a little bit harder for me to see, um, and maybe I'll change my mind as I go through these episodes. The male characters we get in Vandover and the Brute and in McTeague are all pretty disgusting. Um, in Vandover and the Brute, we have lazy, uh, exploitative, uh, in some cases, weak, very weak figures. In McTeague, the male character, the main main character is just stupid and um, not very impressive at all. And yeah, there are characters taking advantage of each other. And if we want to see that as kind of a Darwinian struggle, that's fine. But it's hardly the best that rises in these novels. Um, and in some cases, like in McTeague, there's basically no winner uh, at all. If anything, both of these novels actually critique variants of masculinity. In, in Vandover, it's the youthful womanizer and the playboy that gets criticized. And in McTeague, it's the hardworking, modest man who gets exposed ultimately as just as greedy, petty, and violent as, as any others. So my reaction as a reader, at least tentatively for now, is that while we're exposed thematically to the struggle for survival, um, it's presented pretty much in a negative light. Um, what bothers me is about Norris is that he doesn't really provide many alternatives. Uh, certainly not in Vandover and the Brute. In, in McTeague, there's a really small glimmer of, of hope, perhaps, but it's not really something he emphasizes. And, and the first time I read it, I just missed it because um, that's, a, that's a hard novel to, to read. I mean, it's emotionally brutal. But anyways, enough on that. Let's just jump into Vandover and the Brute. Um, the novel was published in 1914, but it was written about 20 years before that. It covers the, the, life, the early life and the rapid decline of a perhaps, perhaps or perhaps not <laughs> promising art student uh, who becomes by the end of the novel an impoverished beggar uh, and humiliated day laborer. As the book opens, we get Vandover's background and how his family came to San Francisco. His mother, and a lot of this seems familiar to people who know anything about Norris's own life. His mother dies on the trip. We learn how he became interested in art and painting. 
Uh, we learn how he's still being supported mostly by his father. Um, his father is a very important character and sets up much of the action of the novel. Um, and we'll, we'll see how that works out in, in the, these two episodes. In addition to his day job, Vandover's father invested in real estate. He pays for the properties basically with no money down, mortgaging them a second time to purchase another building. This type of real estate shenanigans should be familiar to all of us living in post-2008 well, the 2008, post 2008 world. It does make his family finances fairly unstable. It's not something Vandover is really aware of until later in the novel, but there's kind of an un, uh, unstable base. And Norris lays this out early in the, the story. Now, it does bring in some income for the family, but his father really has a good job. So he's bringing in money through his job. His father promises to take Vandover to Paris where he can maybe develop his art techniques and art talents. But then he changes his mind on the way and, and drops him off essentially in Cambridge, in Massachusetts, and says and tells him to basically go to Harvard. And so Vandover does. He goes to Harvard. The opening chapter also introduces us to this kind of semi-character. And, and it's a character I'll, I'll talk about more in, in the future. But it's, it's the Brute. So the novel is called Vandover and the Brute. So who's this Brute? The Brute is essentially a side of Vandover, a part of his character. And it seems to be rooted in Vandover's lack of a strong female character. A certain word, the blunt Anglo-Saxon name for a lost woman that he heard on one occasion among the boys at school opened him to a vista of incredible weakness. But now, after the first moment of revolt, the things began to seem less horrible. There was even a certain attraction about it. Vandover soon became filled with an overwhelming curiosity, the eager, evil curiosity of the schoolboy, the pervasive craving for a knowledge of vice. He listened with his ears to everything that was said and went about through the great city with eyes open only to its foulness. He even looked up in the dictionary the meaning of the new words finding in the cold scientific definitions some strange sort of satisfaction. There was no femi feminine influence about Vandover at this critical time to help him see the world in the right light and to gauge things correctly. And he might have been totally corrupted while in his earliest teens had it not been for another side of his character that was going to do develop about the same time. And this goes on to, then, the, then Norris goes on to talk about Vandover's artistic side, which is going to be the counterbalance to this, this brute, this, this, negative attitude about women and life and vice. Um, I have the feeling that this is not an entirely reliable narrator here. And I really am starting to think more and more that the brute is simply Vandover's justification for his, his actions. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe not. We'll, we'll get to that later. The next chapter focuses on Vandover's college life. He makes some friends with other San Francisco students. Um, one of these is Charlie Geary, who's a law student. The other is Dolliver, often going by Dolly, the Dolliver Hate, uh, sometimes also called just the, the young hate. These become the core characters in the novel, and they suggest different paths that Vandover may have taken in his life. He gets involved in Vice while at Harvard, but it isn't that serious. He is like any number of other indifferent, distracted undergraduates, and he doesn't graduate by the skin of his teeth. 
he loses his virginity at some point while in college, and we get another passage suggesting his views on women. Specifically, what we learn about Vandover's attitude towards women is he's differentiating in his mind between kind of lost, unworthy women and pure women. Um, quote, what had been bashfulness in the boy developed in, in, in the young man to a profound respect and an instinctive regard for women. This stood him in good stead throughout all of his four years of Harvard life. In general, he kept himself pretty straight. There were plenty of fast girls and lost women about Cambridge, but Vandover found that he could not associate with them to any degree of satisfaction. He never knew how to take them, never could rid himself of the idea that they were to be treated as ladies. They on their part did not like him. He was too diffident, too courteous, too slow. They preferred the rough self-assertion and easy confidence of Geary, who never took no as an answer and who could chafe with them on their own ground. Well, this is going to be a common theme throughout the book. Particularly, you know, Vandover's conflict between his desire to have a, you know, a, a relatively upper class, respectable woman to marry and his growing attraction to to I guess lower class women or, or women who, who aren't so refined I'm struggling to find the right words here because I don't want to repeat the classist language that, that Norris is using here but um, I hope you get the idea so after Harvard he returns to San Francisco and takes up a life of leisure it's funded by his father um, and he begins to hope to develop his artistic talents, eventually going to Paris, and he'll become a famous um, painter someday. Um, the brute is awakened in him again, and again, this trigger seems to be something about women. Um, this is on page 21 of the Library of America version of this text. For a second time, the animal in him, the perverse evil brute, awoke and stirred. The idea of resistance hardly occurred to Vandover, and it would be hard it would be disagreeable to resist. And Vandover had not accustomed himself to the performance of hard, disagreeable duties. They were among other, the unpleasant things that he had shirked. He told himself later on that when he had grown older and steadier and had profited by experience and knowledge of the world and was stronger, in a word, he would curb the thing and restrain it. He saw no danger in such a course. It was what other men did with impunity. And then we're introduced to one of his um, first acquaintances, um, as, it, as it's put here, uh, with a woman since returning to um, San Francisco, which is a, a woman named Flossie, who we'll meet in a, in, a, in a few minutes. In chapter three, we learn more about his life in San Francisco. Vandover and his college friends go on group dates, uh, as you might expect. Vandover often skips work or he leaves the studio early. He is simply not very hardworking and has natural talents for art atrophy pretty quickly. And anyone who's actually developed a skill, uh, become good at something, especially if you know they want to be a master at it, it's something you have to work at. And it's really easy to squander natural ability if it's not cultivated. Uh, and that's what Vandover does. So essentially, Vandover throws away his artistic talent. Um, it's not clear that it's that happens until later in the novel, but it, it, the roots of that are, are set here in the early pages. He acquires a girlfriend of sorts named Turner Ravis. She's a quote-unquote good girl. She's from a wealthy family or upper middle class family anyways. 
She thinks that Vandover and her are working towards engagement, but Vandover does not really move forward with the relationship. Um, he often spends his time with lower class women. Uh, and there, I, I mean, it's strictly in the economic sense, not, not anything else. Uh, although he seems to, uh, this seems to shame him somewhat. Uh, it's often a, a theme here that he doesn't want to be seen in public with some of these other women he's dating. Um, now, meanwhile, Hayat, his, his friend from college, uh, who also returned to San Francisco, is in love with Turner. Vandover sees other women, but, you know, never quite lets go of Turner. So he's he's basically two-timing her throughout town. Uh, this creates resentment between Hayat, who who loves Turner and wants her to have a good future, and, and Vandover. Um, they're not really exploding yet, and, and hates trying to work behind the scenes to to basically do, you know, get Turner to dump Vandover and, and come to her senses about him. At the end of one date, Turner gets Vandover to promise to go to church with him the next day. And this, this is an important event because this is maybe um, Turner trying to civilize Vandover a little bit by making him go to church. And we see a similar thing happen in McTeague when Trina uh, tries to sort of civilize McTeague. Vandover agrees to go to church, uh, but if he first goes to, a, you know, Turner goes home and, and he stays out with his friends and he goes to an oyster bar. You know, so they serve oyster, but also drinks and they have private rooms, um, which, you know, we're all kinds of things can go on there. It's called the Imperial and he, he goes there with his friends and he spends a lot of time at the Imperial. Chapter four is set mostly in the Imperial. So we get a really good look at the Imperial and we meet the other women that seem to attract Vandover so much. Um, now, Norris is pretty cagey with the language. Apparently, they're they're they seem to be prostitutes, or or at least you know those charity girls, so-called charity girls, women who would um, go on dates, usually with the expectation that there'd be sex in exchange for gifts or just a good night out in the town. Um, Kathy Pice's book *Cheap Amusements* talks about this phenomenon among working-class women in in New York. But the most important of these women we meet is a woman named Flossie. And here's how she's described by Nora. So you can, you don't have to take my word for it. Just hear it for yourself. She belonged to that class of women who are not know, who are not to know one's last name or address and whose hate and love are equally to be dreaded. There was upon her face the unmistakable traces of a ruined virtue and a vanished innocence. Her slightest action suggested her profession. As soon as she removed the veil and gloves, it was as though she was partially undressed and her uncovered face and hands seemed to be only portions of her nudity. The general conception of women of her class is the painted and broken wreck. Flossie radiated health. Her eyes were clear, her nerves steady, her flesh hard and even as a child's. There hung around her an air of cleanliness, of freshness, of good nature, of fine and high spirits, while with every movement she exhaled a delicious perfume that was not only musk, but that seemed to come alike from her dress, her hair, her neck, the very flesh and body. Vandover was no longer the same as he had been during his college days. He was now familiar with this odor of abandoned women, this foul, sweet savor of the great city's vice that quickly quickened his breath and sent his heart knocking at his throat. All right, so that's uh, this description of, of Flossie. Anyways, Vandover proceeds to get incredibly drunk during the evening. 
He gets home like at 3 a.m. He only sleeps for three hours before he has to get up and go to this church date that he made with Turner. He's still drunk when he gets up. It's like, you know, the servant wakes him up and he's like, eh. you know, he doesn't want to get up. But eventually he, he crawls himself out of bed, goes to church. He has to take communion while basically still drunk, nearly passing out while trying to get up from kneeling. It, it's all very embarrassing. It does cause him to think about changing his ways, um, but don't don't hold your breath. Chapter five, Vandover is still trying to work in the studio and we see him working with some models and we, we learn the limits of his skill, but also we learn that he has legitimate talents and legitimate ambitions. His ambition is to visit Paris and that's been his ambition all along. He wants to develop his talents. And this, it becomes kind of a running excuse about why his career can't get going. It's, it's, we all know this kind of excuse. It's like, if only this had happened, I would be successful. If only it hadn't been for this person or this event, or if only I, you know, had a thousand dollars, I'd be able to get able, you know, this kind of language, this kind of idea is in Vandover. It becomes an excuse why he can't become an artist. He does have a fairly ambitious idea, so I'll give him some credit for that. He, he wants to have this grand painting called The Last Enemy. And um, I think it was a, a wounded soldier who gets attacked by a lion or something. At this point, we're introduced to a, to a, a pretty young woman, a friend of Vandover's named Ida Wells. And here again, Norris is describing this woman through her type the same way he did with Flossie. Um, quote, Ida Wade belonged to a certain type of young girl that was very common in the city. She was what men amongst each other called gay, though not, though that was the worst that could be said of her. She was virtuous, but the very fact that it was necessary to say so was enough to cause the statement to be doubted. When she was younger, she had been a pupil at the girls' high school. She had known and even been a companion of such girls as Turner Ravis and Henriette Vance. But since that time, girls in the class had ignored her. Not almost all of her acquaintances were men, and to half of these she had never been introduced. They, they had managed to get acquainted with her on Kearney Street, the theaters, at the Mechanics Fair, and at baseball games. She loved to have a gay time, for which she meant to drink California champagne, to smoke cigarettes, and to kick in the chandelier. She was still virtuous and meant to stay so, there was nothing vicious about her, and she was as far removed from Flossie's class as from Turner Ravis. She was, she's really sounds like a, you know, great, fun date. You know, she likes baseball anyway, so it's... Anyways, uh, knowing what's going to happen to her, it makes it all kind of sad to reread this. Since, you know, Vandover seems willing to sleep with anyone. It really doesn't matter about their background, though. Uh, what matters is he really doesn't want to be seen in public with her. And th this is a, a weird part of his relationship with her. He eventually talks her into this date. They go out, eventually ending up at the Imperial. At the time, it's not clear what happens. I'll just read the passage. Um, They did not hurry over their little supper, but ate and drank slowly and had more oysters to go with the last of their bottles. Ida's face was ablaze and her eyes flashing, her blonde hair disordered, falling about her cheeks. Vandover put his arm around her neck and drew her towards him. And as she sank down upon him, she smiling and, com and complacent, her hair tumbling upon her shoulders and her head and throat bent back. She leaned his cheek against her, speaking in a low voice. No, no, she murmured smiley. Never, ah. 
If I hadn't come, no, Van, please. And then with a long breath, she abandoned herself. There's a new paragraph. About midnight, he left her at the door of her house on Golden Gate Avenue. And then there's a little bit more where she basically says, Van, Vandover, you're going to have to be uh, my boyfriend now. Or don't think less of me. You got to be true to me. All right. It's not clear now. It will be clear later. He date raped her. Um, any question of Andover's nature should be gone from the reader at this point. It's a, it's, it's a little bit hidden here, but within a few chapters, it, it's very clear that uh, he raped her. So our sympathy for him vanishes, or at least mine does. Uh, up to this point, you may have had enjoyed his adventures, such as they were, and even sympathized with him from time to time. We've all known frustrations of maybe getting that good job or not having our life turn out the way we wanted to. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to it, he's a horrible person. Um, and he likes to make excuses for himself. And he'll make excuses for what he did to Ida as well. Vandover, in the space of a sentence, turns basically into a pathetic character. Um, chapter 6. We get a closer look at the Ravis family. The main important point in this chapter is that hate warns Turner of Vandover. And eventually he finds he can't really talk her into leaving him, so he lets her go, learning that she does um, But she learns that she does want to marry Vandover, but he does give it his best shot. Uh, chapter 7. Vandover, uh, another friend of his, Ellis, uh, they have a kind of a double date with Ida Wells and another woman at the fair, at the mechanics fair. Vandover doesn't want to be seen with Ida. Uh, they run into Geary and hate. And the men proceed to discuss women. Vandover gives us this really disgusting thesis on the place of the gentleman in modern America. Um, it goes on for several pages, so I'm not going to read it. But essentially what Vandover says is women don't want to be well-treated. Women women don't want to be well-treated. And the fact that they don't want to, the fact that they want to be played, they want to have sex, they want to have fun, means men should just simply take advantage of that. That is his thesis. So if you want to see social Darwinism in there, you, you can, but it, it's not really praised that much. Um, hate responds that it's the duty of, of men to protect women from themselves if it comes to that, um, which I guess isn't that much of a better um, position. Certainly it's not a feminist position, um, but that's um, life. He thinks there's a place for the gentleman. Vandover thinks it's, it's, it's useful. It's useless to be a gentleman because women want to be seduced is essentially his argument. And it, it's an important discussion and it, covers a significant chunk of the text of the novel. They're both patriarchal positions, however. Vandover sees women's freedom as a path to his own pleasure. Hate wants to protect the virtues of, of women. As if this conversation was planted by the gods, Vandover wakes up the next day to learn that Ida Wells killed herself by taking too much laudanum. He begins to think about what happened that night when they had sex and realizes, yeah, maybe I did rape her. So, um... This kind of if now now the reader learns the truth, I guess, if it was a little bit vague, un, a little bit vague earlier. So chapter eight. Now we see Vandover's privilege on full display. His father has now knows about what happened to Ida Wells and knows Vandover's role in it. 
His father quickly decides to cover up for his son, telling him to take a cruise to San Diego. Basically, you know, spend a week on the beach or something. And when he returns, his father tells him that he will take him on that Paris trip. He can focus on getting his career going and get his life going again. Uh, of course, that's not an option for, for Ida Wells. On the cruise, Vandover is quickly bored. And here we really see his most negative characteristics come forth. I mean, he's on a cruise. He has a vacation. He's paid for by his father. And he just thinks about how bored he is the whole time. His only real distraction he finds on the ship is this girl he knows, Grace Irving. He met her before, but the only thing he can really think of doing is seducing her. And when he decides that he better not do that, he simply shuns her. It seems that in Vandover's mind, there's really no space between seduction um, and, and indifference. Chapter nine. In, in this chapter, he returns to San Francisco on a second class ship, finding plenty of to complain about in regard to his accommodations. Just outside of San Francisco, the ship starts to sink. And Vandover survives. Um, it's in this chapter that we get the unfortunately included Jewish character I referred to before. It's simply unnecessary and it's distracting. Uh, when we look at Matig, we'll find even a worse depiction of a, of a Jew. But there at least it serves the plot a little bit. And, you know, I don't think it, it, it needs to be there quite as explicitly. But, you know, it has a function here. It's just there to kind of make fun of a Jew who dies uh, due to his kind of his greed. Um, it's just a, a really unfortunate portrayal. And I'll just leave it at that. Chapter 10. We're now about halfway through the novel and Vandover's decline can begin. And um, if you're like me, you can begin to enjoy this decline. We have already seen his wasted promise. We've seen how his attitude towards women caused tragedy. Most of the rest of the novel is just a brutal purgatory for Vandover and for the reader. Instead of going to see his father after surviving the wreck, Vandover goes to the Imperial. And this is um, almost unbelievable. His only real interest in going there is hopes that he can meet Flossie. Um, he talks to people about the wreck. Drunk, he returns home to find that his father had died. So during the night, the, the, the servants didn't think he was dead. So he died literally just hours or maybe just minutes before. Apparently, the shock over the news of the shipwreck caused his heart to fail. So literally, as his father was dying, Vandover was getting drunk at the Imperial and trying to uh, meet up with a woman he could have sex with. And for a moment, we're in a horror novel when we realize that Vandover is now head of this rel relatively wealthy household. Now, I enjoyed reading this novel, particularly in seeing how Norris breaks down the masculinity of our hero. His money has provided for him this inflated sense of self and of self-importance. He loses his chance with his girlfriend. He rapes a really nice woman, a really kind of fun-loving woman. I, I think it's probably the sounds of, like the most fun of all the women that Vandover knows. Causes her to commit suicide. Hours before that suicide, he was ashamed to be seen with her. He's overprivileged, he's lazy, and he's given to, to the easiest temptations. But what of this brute? In the second half of the novel, it matures into almost a secondary personality in Vandover. But I would like to suggest to you that the brute is nothing more than Vandover's self-justification for his behavior. Vandover is not faded. He's not psychologically damaged or possessed by a dark side that he has to fight against. He's just a pampered jerk who squanders his talent and his money with equal speed. 
Well, I'll leave it with that, and I'll come back and finish up with Vandover and the Brute uh, next episode. Thank you for listening to American Writers 100 Pages at a Time. Uh, if you want to contact me, you can do that at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd appreciate it if you enjoyed this podcast to, to rate, to comment on, or to, to share, or subscribe on iTunes. Um, thank you for listening, and I'll see you in 100 Pages. Monica in my life, a little bit of Erica by my side, a little bit of 